0: This is IAQ Radio, Indoor Air Quality Radio, the voice of the indoor air quality industry. With your host, Radio Joe Hughes, and the
1: Z-Man, Cliff Zlotny. And now, Radio Joe Hughes.
2: Good day, and welcome to IAQ Radio Plus. Uh, looking forward to a great show today. We've got Corbett Lunsford. He's going to talk to us about home performance uh, from the Home Performance Workshop, and And the the Tiny Lab, we're going to talk, I believe he's calling direct from the Tiny Lab. So looking forward to a great interview. Before we get started, uh, let's thank our platinum sponsors. IAQ
1: Radio platinum sponsor is John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop. Visit them at johndon.com. That's
2: J-O-N-D-O-N.com. I also want to thank our gold sponsors, Particles Plus, Healthy Indoors Magazine, Gray Wolf Sensing Solutions, and AEML Inc. Laboratory. And, of course, our association sponsors, the Indoor Air Quality Association and the Restoration Industry Association
0: and now you can win a cool prize it's time for the iaq radio trivia question be the first to correctly answer simply email your answer to c zlotnick at cs.com or if listening live just text your answer from your computer and now here's the z-man with this week's iaq radio trivia question hello everyone Congratulations go out to both Tom Barnes in Greenville, South Carolina, and Doug Conan, uh, Aerotech Environmental in Dayton, Ohio, who answered last week's trivia question, identifying David Edward Hughes in England, Emil Berliner, Alexander Graham Bell, and Thomas Edison in the United States as the group who independently developed the microphone. The IQ trivia question for today, February 15, 2019, has been sponsored by I.D. is the solution chemistry company providing unique solutions to odor removal, surface cleaning, and decontamination problems. Here's today's trivia question. Name the individual widely acknowledged as the father of the tiny house movement. Back
2: to you, Joe. Thank you, Cliff. All right. Today's guest is Corbett Blunsford. Corbett uh, has uh, been doing home performance since about 2008, and, and he got started and learned very quickly. That, uh, you know, testing and um, proof is possible, I guess, is the key behind what he's talked about. And in 2016, he and his wife, Grace, built the world's highest performance tiny house on wheels. They call it the Tiny Lab. They toured the United States before settling down in Atlanta, Georgia, where they're still building, I believe, a new home. And uh, they actually toured the the country and, and stopped around the country. And while they were doing so, they also filmed uh, on high, a home diagnosis show, which is going to air publicly across the United States on PBS. They went 13,000 miles on a 34-city U.S. tour from April of 2016 to January of 2017, and we look forward to learning more about what they learned on the trip and on, in their tiny home and talking more about home performance. Welcome to the show, Corbett.
3: Thank you very much, Joe and Cliff. I appreciate that you had us back on.
2: Great to have you! Yeah, that's right. We talked in uh, Texas. Both you and Grace were on.
3: Yeah, in Austin uh, at the home um, Yeah, that was fun. Grace uh, was there that time. She can't make it today, so I'm sorry that she couldn't be here. But we've got two little girls, and she just had to run them over to to make lunch. So
2: that's understood. I understood, buddy. And you are you are calling in from the tiny house, right?
3: Yeah, I'm I'm sitting on the ground. I have a cat in my lap. There's a cat wandering around somewhere around here. This is our kitchen, you can see. There's our dining loft up there. Uh and the sleeping loft is down the hall that way. So yeah, it's it's two hundred square feet and it's it's we still live here. So um it's uh it served us well and it's we call it the most tortured house in the country, along with other nicknames. But um we dragged it, you know, at fifty five miles an hour around the country. And so it's, it went through an earthquake and a hurricane at the same time on a regular basis. And it still
2: performs exactly the way they want it to. Tell us a little bit first about how you got started. I mean, in the in the bio, it says you started in home performance, I guess, around 2008. But maybe I, I misunderstood. How did you get started in this whole home performance field? Well,
3: I came from not having – a really good option aside from home performance. So yeah, starting in homes in 2008 is kind of a silly move when you're remembering what 2008 was like. But I was a musician. I worked, uh, I improvised music for dance companies and theater. And so I decided to quit that because I wanted to do something more serious with my life. And, um, you know, this came up as a possibility. So then I got my HERS rating certificate, uh, got BPI certified, and then started training other people is my audio
1: okay?
2: Yeah, yeah, why don't we have you call in? Let's just break okay, it up a little bit, but we're going to have Corbett call in. Um, and, and while we do, John, do me a favor. Put a photo of the uh, of the tiny house up there, or maybe a couple of them. This is a fascinating. It's just uh, fascinating what you've done here. I, I don't know that um, too many wives would uh, agree to go ahead and travel across the country in this tiny house. There's Corbett and Grace. 200 square feet and uses uh, all the most current home uh, building science techniques and technologies. It got built in a bunch of um, monitoring equipment. We'll talk a little bit about that. And uh, they've traveled around the country showing people their tiny house. You can see there that this tiny house thing is a big, big craze now. And this is um, the highest performance tiny house in the world. So there's another uh, shot of the tiny house. And uh, you can see it's um, sort of, you know, kind of similar to a trailer. I want to ask a little bit about that. I'm, I'm a little confused. Uh, in 2008, you started doing, you know, your BPI and, and um, the dealing with home performance. But then you started teaching right away. How did you pull that off, only having been in the business for a very short time? Well,
3: so that's something that, some, you know, some people might think is a hack move. Where I came from, Chicago there were no, like when I got certified as a BPI professional, um, and if you're not familiar with BPI, Building Full Informance Institute about existing home improvements to do with the invisible dynamics, mostly physics, not so much chemistry. But we got into chemistry because of home chem. But uh, when I got certified, there were no trainers in the entire state that I could go to to get trained. So I had to self-study for it and have somebody come in and give me like a day crash course on some hands-on Techniques that I needed in order to pass the test. Then when we passed the test. I realized that we needed more people who were certified for this. No one else was uh, certified, you know, a, a qualified trainer in Chicago. So I decided, well, all right, I'm going to put together a training school then. Um, a lot of the people that I had met and asked advice from were of the school that thought, oh, I'm not going to share my secrets with you. This is a closed system, and we want to keep it as um, exclusive as possible. And I'm not going to tell you how I do all my stuff because then, you know, everybody would be able to do this. And I, I thought that was pretty gross. So I decided when I was in a position to be able to share information freely, I would do it until I couldn't do it anymore. It turns out that that has some really interesting benefits. I think sharing information, just like you guys do for free. Um, but, uh, that was what I decided to do. And I asked somebody whether I should buy a curriculum from someone who already had built one or whether I should build it myself. And uh, one of my mentors, Brian Coomer, had said, you know what? You'll know the topic a lot better if you build the curriculum yourself. So I said, all right, that sounds good. I like it. So that's kind of how the training center was born. I stopped doing in-person training along the along the way because the, at the very beginning there, the, the ARA funding really falsely inflated the demand for this kind of training.
2: I see, I see, and that's been a, a a topic in the whole energy efficiency, home performance uh, you know group for years now that um you know that the the programs through the electric companies, et cetera weren't really um, you know they were they were helping in a way that may not be good long term, I guess yeah. if you look at it right.
3: And I I agree about that. I started out doing some weatherization work and working with energy efficiency programs, but I don't, since about 2011, we decided to completely give that up and we only work in the private market now. So I don't work with rebate programs. I've actually dropped all my certifications, um, kind of to prove a point. I wanted to prove that there is a market out there for um, private market, not incentivized home performance work to help people tune their comfort and safety and health at their homes.
2: And how has that worked out for you?
3: I think pretty well. I mean, I I have a really weird, just like anybody who does something that's kind of interesting, like you guys, with a, a podcast that's kind of a, you know, is it radio? Is it internet? I don't know. Uh, I'm sure that you get asked that a lot, but there's no recipe for success in anything, I think, that's part of the new economy. So my recipe for success is I wrote the book on how to do the testing, I created a YouTube channel. My wife created a YouTube channel. She's actually the secret sauce for the videos that we do and the TV show. Um, You know, I'm, so I'm married to this wonderful woman. We don't have a normal job so we can build a tiny house like this and go on tour and not worry about making enemies or going broke or anything like that. So there's kind of like a whole bunch of really weird ingredients in our story, but I'd say that, um, that, the consulting works out well. I get approached by both professionals and by homeowners. And um like for example, I'm going now that we have a television show that's airing around the country, I'm getting more calls from people who just want to get me on the phone for an hour and kick my brain about their particular problem. And in my opinion, that should be there should be one ninja in every single market who can be a person like me. And then there should be a whole bunch of contractors who already do insulation HVAC window replacements, things like that, any kind of renovations, who should be able to test their own work. So I think that my dream world would be that everyone tests their work, and then you've got for weird situations where you need a little bit extra firepower, you have ninjas available in every market who can come in and do really advanced testing that not everybody needs to know how to do.
2: Interesting. Now you mentioned earlier, and I think it's a good way to look at this, BPI, the Building Performance Institute, they dealt with existing homes, and then I guess it's resnet more that deals with uh new home construction have you done that as well
3: yes and i I was both of those and i always got yelled at whenever i would make that distinction because they both both of those organizations like to say that they can do both really that's not true that's why you're mostly yeah hers (laughs) raiders do new construction that's what I was certified in at the beginning, and I realized that I knew nothing about existing homes. And then BPI is for existing homes, and it's not as much about the energy modeling and all the stuff that you work on plans for a new construction project. So, yeah, that's I think that's a pretty fair distinction, although I get yelled at <laughs> for making it.
2: We're, we're going a little off script here, but that, that leads me to another question that I think is... I'll sure. be interested, because I like that you're candid and uh, don't hold back on these things. So BPI recently has started their um, home health evaluator or something like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're trying to get their group more focused on indoor air quality. I'm curious what your thoughts are on that.
3: I think that's super important. They've been focused. Um, I have – so for full disclosure, BPI is still a very big part of our – even though I'm not certified anymore and I don't do any BPI training, they were a founding sponsor of a television show about this topic. And they are gonna they're gonna continue to be a sponsor in season two. So uh, I really think that the direction that they want this whole conversation to go is the right direction. Is the, what I care about talking about, which is the health, the air quality, the comfort levels, and less about energy efficiency and hitting kind of energy audit marks, um, because that doesn't work. I think that if it had worked, that conversation about energy efficiency and energy conservation, it would have worked. We've been talking about that since the seventies. So the fact that people don't know what a blower door is and it's 40 years after it was invented means that the conversation that we've been trying to have with them just is not working. We need to try a new tack. So I think that that taking it into a health perspective, um, I've heard that the energy folks like the DOE, for example, does not want us to bring up the health issue, because frankly, the amount of dollars saved, if you want to put it that way, as a metric that you can use to prove that something works, the dollars saved on health care would far eclipse anything to do with energy conservation. And it would take the the conversation completely away from energy efficiency, when of course, energy efficiency is important. And we need to, you know, figure out with all these new gadgets that we're getting and all these, everybody's got a car or two cars or three cars or whatever, we need to Focus on that, and refrigerators should be getting more efficient. But that's not the primary conversation we should be having to get people to care about this topic. I think. So yeah, I'm I'm on board with the health side of things. I think that's the right way to go. If we can, like for example, let me just be perfectly right. if I can say to the American public on the television show, "Are you sure that you're not poisoning your children?" that gets a lot more attention than saying, are you sure that when you, you know, the, the lights get turned off when you leave the house? Cause
2: mm,
3: yeah. that's just I, not as, you
2: know, a month on your electric bill, you know, that, that doesn't, right. Doesn't grab them. Uh, Cliff, let me make sure you, you get a shot to uh, chime in here. Any questions? No, not yet. Joe. That's good. <laughs> let, me, let me keep going because, you know, we're talking about the show and I, what I think we should do maybe is talk a little more about that now, Corbett, and then, for the second half, I want to maybe come back to the tiny house and lessons learned from the tiny house and how, uh, how those are incorporated into the show. But first, we're, I, I have not seen the show. I, I, I've been watching on PBS here. I, I don't see it on my local station. And um, mm-hmm. I'm curious, how, where is it running? How often is it running? How many shows are there?
3: So right now, so first of all, it's a six-episode first series. Uh, first season, that is. And it's because we didn't have enough money to make more than that. It's it's uh, we visit a house. We test what it's doing now. We kind of listen to the homeowners complaints about a mysterious problem or a bunch of problems that they're they're having. We use performance testing and make the performance testing look super sexy and uh, kind of diagnose what exactly is happening with the physics and chemistry of a home. Then make a prescription for here's how you fix it. And then we don't follow up after. And the reason that we do that is, again, budget. Grace and I made this first season on our own dime while we were on tour on our own dime. And so, you know, that's just what had to happen. So it's kind of like an HGTV format, except for it's not before and after, it's just before. Uh, season two is going to be a lot more about problems and solutions, and not necessarily in the same home It's going to be more thematic-based. But season one, six episodes, uh, six homes around the country, mostly on the East Coast and up in New York. Um, and we, uh, the tiny house plays a character in the show because it's basically the foil. So every house that we visit that has weird stuff going on, we say, okay, to avoid weird stuff, if you were going to build from scratch, here is how you would do it. Here's how the perfect scenario works out. And so that's where the character of the tiny house that you want to talk about uh, in the second half kind of comes into play is that it? it was designed to be the kind of thing where engineers would come in here and say, why did you do that? And we would be able to say, we have a very specific reason why we did that. And here's, here's, here's why. So after half an hour this engineer now becomes a, you know, a proselytizer for home performance. But the show essentially is all about trying to make the invisible visible because HGTV has done a great job of selling a bunch of boxes and products off of big box stores or having you think that it can take a half an hour to fully flip a house when really, you know, Anybody who's been in construction knows things go horribly wrong. The minute you start demolishing something or digging into the ground or whatever. And that's the story of our house. I'm looking at our home builds right out the window here. And, um, so yeah, the story is more complicated and we want people to know two things. We want the consumers to know that if they want better, they can have it. All they need is a language to be able to describe it and targets to be able to build into a contract. And if they want that, they're going to have to pay more, and give more time to the building professionals, of which there are two kinds, the kinds that are going to be willing and able to prove their work and to prove that they do a better quality job than the next guy, scientifically. So it's not about opinions anymore. And the guys who insist that people aren't willing to pay for it and they're not willing to prove their work, in which case those people take the cheap homeowners and they go off in their corner and they do the cheap stuff. And what's left is all the people who just want it to be done the right way, who wanna protect their family, and the contractors who can deliver that kind of work and prove it with testing.
2: What? Okay. So uh, you mentioned the HGTV shows. I have, my son has a small construction business and, and I guess my pet peeve with them is, and I'm, I'm wondering if you see the same thing. Uh, they make these big changeovers of these homes and they give people, in my opinion, very unrealistic costs for doing that. Uh you know, you mentioned it costs more to do it right. And they also don't focus on doing it right other than aesthetically pleasing. I I don't I don't recall I know that um Chip and Joanna got got hammered for disturbing lead based paint on a bunch of their projects without actually testing for it or, or verifying what was going on. I'm wondering what you know, you mentioned it costs a little bit more. What what should people expect as a premium to build a really good, high-performance home?
3: Well, I, I mean, so to me, this kind of gets at the root. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get at your question, but I'm going to take a little digression for a second. Okay. Uh, one of my mentors, Neil Moyer from Florida, um, insisted early in my career, it was very important for me to hear, that he said, you know, everybody's talking about performance, but really they mean prescription, where everybody should have the same performance on their homes. Code does that. Uh, even certifications like Energy Star do that. There's like a prerequisite level of performance that every home should have. I don't think that that's the right way to go about it. I think he's right that we need to make it more tuned for individual scenarios. So the question now becomes, how much is it worth to you to achieve the specific goals that you want? If you are a single guy who has never had children and you're 55 years old and you don't you've never been married and you don't plan on being married or you've been married seven times and you don't plan on being married again. You have a much different demand on your performance at your house than somebody who has 10 kids. And I know one of those people you might know as well, but you know, that kind of a distinction of like, what do you want out of your house? And then what is it worth to you? To me, it's worth an extra, I'd say 20% on anything that I do to guarantee that it's not going to give me a hassle and make my kids sick, potentially make my wife uncomfortable. Um, you know, make moisture problems or durability problems with the thing that I just finished. So almost everything that I do, I try to make it as last as long as possible because I know what a pain in the butt it is to have a house. I had the first condo we had was not built well and just, you couldn't even change some stuff about it because it was built in, you know, the electrical system and the plumbing system were like this. So you can't do anything with either of them. You have to wait until someone has a catastrophic event and then you tear the whole thing out. Now you can do it right. So I think that that's the question is what is it worth, you know, in any market, you have a $250,000 price point on a home, a new home. Is it worth an extra $25,000 to guarantee that you're not going to have comfort problems, health problems, durability issues with that house? for basically the life of the mortgage. And you can prove that stuff. It's not that hard. That's why we built the tiny lab is because I don't know anything about home building. I had to learn how to use a nail gun to build this house. And I'd never designed a house before. Um, and I did almost everything in here with my mom and dad who also never built a house. So if I could build a house, they could go through hurricane and earthquake at the same time on a regular basis and be as airtight. Like the, air, the HVAC system is running right now. And you can't hear it. The ventilation system is running right now. I'm plugged. My entire house is plugged into one outlet on my temporary power pole that pulls 15 amps under 20 volts. You know, it's like all this stuff. If I could do it, anyone can do this. It's not rocket science. So that's kind of what we were trying to demonstrate.
2: Interesting. Now, I mean, I I look at what you did with the TV show sort of like building a spec house. Um, You know, people build homes and they, they say, okay, somebody's going to buy this home and they, um, you know, they build it, they put the, they, they invest in it. Uh, they take a gamble and it, it looks like you took a gamble with the show. Um, and, and I'm wondering yeah. how it's received. I mean, did you go directly just to PBS or were there other, did you talk to HGTV? Or, you know, how hard is all that?
3: It's incredibly hard. Now I know for a fact why no one has ever done this before. This is the first <laughs> television show about building science and home performance in history that is not the world I want to live in. Like I'm not proud that no one has done this before. Uh, I'm proud that we did it because now I know that they didn't do it because it's insanely hard. Um, You have to have a, like, I I don't, I won't think that I'm a masochist exactly, but I think that you have to have a drive to get your feelings hurt. And anybody who's kind of an artist, I used to be a musician. So I, I, I my feelings are kind of close to the surface and I get my feelings hurt on a daily basis. Uh, like all day yesterday, basically I walked around like this because I was just, you know, I, even though I'm building my, like I built my house and I, I had this house that we built and I've got this land and I have two beautiful daughters and all this stuff. Like the amount of hurt feelings that you get trying something new. And I'm sure that you guys are familiar with this too, is just astounding. And so we had to shoot the, the show BPI gave us a little bit of seed money, um, to help make the shows, like 7,500 bucks to make six episodes. So on some episodes, and one of them we're going to be screening at the Home Performance Conference in, um, Chicago in April. But Grace and I were the camera crew, the sound people, the, uh, you know, camera operators, the, the producers, the directors, and the hosts. And so, and then somebody was watching our baby over there. Like we had no crew on that shoot at all because it just became clear to us. that if we wanted it done right, we needed to do it ourselves. And so, which is insane. And we're trying to make the second season in a more real, you know, respectable way, but we just had to go uh, balls to the wall with that first season. And then when we made it, your question about PBS, PBS does not, it's a very obscure, obtuse system that has a lot of red tape. And essentially, you don't even want to know. I'm going to put out a video, that's how complicated it is, on how to produce your own television show for PBS. But we're distributed by someone called NETA, the National Educational Telecommunications Association, which puts it out to the programmers. There are 354 uh, television stations that are public television around the country. We are carried on about 50% of them in 30 states right now. And so we hope to be on 80% by the next couple of weeks. Um, to the next couple of months but we had an agent working with the programmers and blah 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 like honestly it just gets really really boring to go into it in depth but i'll just say suffice it to say it was very difficult to do the pbs route the reason that we didn't even try to do on this show the hgtv route or diy or something like that is number one i don't believe in diy i think that that's the wrong message to send when you really want something done right number two uh this, sh- this show says, essentially, if you are not testing, then it's BS, whatever it is that you're doing. If you're assuming that you're doing a good job, it's just not good enough. And so basically what the show says is that every single program on HGTV is BS. <laughs> and they're going to cotton to that pretty soon. And they're going to realize like, hey, that guy is insulting us. Um, Or that, you know, the, the two of them. And so, you know, we want them to copycat this show. Hopefully people will pay more attention to the invisible dynamic. But um, we also didn't want them to make us out, just like the Chip and Joanna thing, to be the world experts on this topic. It's very important to us to have the message of the show be, look, there are people in your backyard that you didn't know about until you saw this show who can do all of this stuff. We're not the world experts. We're going to introduce you to a whole slew of experts around the country who can do this. And then it's up to you to go and hire them. So that that was kind of the other main difference between network TV and the, the public television model.
2: So for for next year's six or eight or whatever shows, are you are you doing it the same way, or is it you're putting up the money? We actually,
3: no. So I so after we made the show, I then went out and fundraised myself, and we raised the money to be able to pay for the show, the production services, the production on uh, season one cost us about $100,000, which is insanely cheap. Um, the production on season two is gonna cost us over $300,000 just for the, the, the checks that we're gonna write to our production company to make the show, all the camera people and the editors and the storyboards and the directors and all that stuff. Wow. So I have to raise like a half a million dollars to really make it worth it's spending two years of our time thinking about this, talking about it every single day, two people, this is basically our entire, <laughs> we put all our eggs in this one basket at this point, which is funny, but, um, No, we're going to do 13 episodes. We're fundraising right now. And I have returning sponsors who are coming back The founding sponsors from season one who are very important to us. They helped us. Like there are a lot of companies who talk a good game. And then there are companies who actually say, I want this to be on television bad enough that I will give you money to do that. And those are the ones that I think are the the, the only serious people about this topic in the entire industry. And I will say that to everyone's face at the building show next week in Las Vegas. Um, But, We are going to do 13 episodes. It's going to be built on themes. So we're going to do like a theme on cooking and cleaning, which is something that we explored a lot at home chem. We're going to do a theme on like holes in the house, windows, doors, skylights, stuff like that. So that people can kind of start to understand the home physics and chemistry from more of a story uh, viewpoint than from, oh, here's a house. Let's figure out what's wrong with it and then prescribe a solution, which is that's nice and everything, but that's the HGTV model. And it's less about the storytelling and more about just a pastiche of little cute shots of like the rehab and then oh here is what we ended up with and isn't that carpet nice uh,
2: no, real quick who are the uh, you know let's let's uh give credit where credit's due who are the, the big sponsors for you
3: oh boy well I should pull up my here I I want to do this right so let me just pull up on my phone here
1: yeah, uh, yeah. so at the I think it's important yeah to, no I appreciate it uh, it is it?
3: important yeah thank what, you what about this So CPS Products, I have plugged in right there, actually. So let me show you this real quick. Go ahead. This just came in last night. Um, That's the new CPS uh, Smart Air Pro. It's a little air quality testing station. I'm I'm trying it out right now, but it's measuring VOCs and blah, blah, blah. So CPS Products was one of our first sponsors and one of the leadership sponsors last uh, on season one, FLIR which makes infrared cameras, obviously they would be interested. Hayward score. And if you don't, if your listeners don't know Hayward score, it's a free assessment that you can take online. And it basically, it's kind of a cool concept. It uses people, the occupants, as the test tools for the air quality. It's kind of a cool thing. Healthy Indoors Magazine, which you guys uh, know. Georgia Pacific Force Field, Fantech, Ultra Air, uh, 475 High Performance Building Supply, Mitsubishi Electric, True Tech Tools, HVAC School Podcasts, Energy Conservatory, RetroTech, the two big makers of blower doors in in the States. Uh, Air Cycler, Rhone, Newtone, Renew Air, those are all ventilation companies. Obviously, that became a really big deal. Testo and Zip Sheathing. Uh, And then BPI and Home Performance Coalition. And it was funny, we had to actually move those two to a special thanks category because the people at PBS thought that uh, this would be a commercial, that this is like a sales tool for the home performance industry, which we just thought was like very charming that they thought that the home performance industry was a real thing right now. (laughs) Uh, And it's just so silly that these are like the two nonprofit organizations on our uh, roster and they were like, Ooh, those are big, big red flag. We don't like that. So anyway, yeah, those are the sponsors from season one. And we're, we're hopeful that people are going to, like I said, I'm going to be at the builder show in Las Vegas next week. I'm going to be wearing my suit, be going, booth to booth, trying to raise money for this. And honestly, it's like, it's excruciating raising money for something, oh, even Eric, if you care about Eric, it a great
2: terrible deal. Terrible. Terrible. But I do want to say this much. Um, I want to thank our sponsors, and we're going to go ahead and take a halftime break and thank them the right way because without them, we couldn't do the show. Um, we lose enough money. To uh, let's stop. We'll be back in 90 seconds with today's guest, Corbett.
1: All right. We're
2: back. The second half of our interview, Corbett Lunsford, Corbett, the, the tiny house. Let's, let's start with the building enclosure. Um, I, I, I wondered, you mentioned, um, zip system. Did, did you use the zip system on your tiny house?
3: I did not. Uh, so we have, what we tried to do was make something that would be, uh, realistic to a home. And that was the main difference why we didn't, do an, an RV. An RV has nothing to do with houses. It's not nice. If you're talking about indoor air quality, it's, um, something that's very common. So like, Hey, would you like to come and tour my RV? No. Would yeah. you like to come inside my tiny house? Yes. So right. what we tried to do is tune it, uh, tune just like we were talking about earlier. How much is it worth to you? Our house would have cost $125,000 if I had not done any of the work or gotten any donations. We wanted the, uh, everything to be tuned perfectly so that we would have uh, maximized floor space, maximized headroom, maximized cost efficiency, and maximized performance. And in, in that, so, so you're looking at like a bar graph and you're trying to make everything equal. So it's not like I want to make this high performance. It's a solar decathlon. I'm going to spend a million or $2 million on this tiny little place. And then no one is ever going to do anything like this again in the entire history of humanity. So that's, to me, the difference between something like the solar decathlon and this type of a thing. This is a real thing that people could do. Um, It represents uh, what a lot of houses would be. It's a much higher cost per square foot because you have all the same stuff as a normal house, but it's squeezed in really, really tight. You have to really work around all of that fitting in. Um, But the enclosure... As far as, so how I define the enclosure is air sealing and insulation. That's the main two things. The sheathing is important. We have, for example, structurally sheathing on the outside, sheathing on the inside. The sheathing on the inside that you see here behind me is pure bond, formaldehyde-free plywood. Okay. Uh, On the outside, not so important. I have two layers of air tightness. One on the outside, just like building paper that you'd see on a normal house like Tyvek or whatever and one on the inside, but they're both from Europe and they're kind of a little higher performance material put together with tapes. Because if a lot of people think, Oh, spray foam is the best, which isn't really true, but okay. That's what marketing is trying to sell people. Uh, Spray foam in this case would have been the worst because this house is going to go through an earthquake and a hurricane on a regular basis. Spray foam is going to crack. It's not designed to be installed on it. No, nothing is designed to be installed on a house that's going through an earthquake and a hurricane on a regular basis. Um, so it would have all cracked and now it wouldn't be airtight. So we used uh, membranes and tapes, which are flexible and uh, rock wool insulation, which is going to just sit there in the cavity and not worry about cracking or shifting or anything like that uh, to break my air seal. And then we just used the right amount of insulation for everything. So in the walls, we've got our 15 insulation in the ceiling. We've got our uh, 20 insulation and you would think it should be higher. But the thing is that that over there, is the smallest ductless mini-split heat pump that they make in the world. And if I add more insulation to this house, what I'm doing is essentially decoupling, detuning the enclosure from the engines that drive the heat and the airflow in the house. And now I've actually oversized my HVAC system on purpose by adding more insulation. I don't want to do that. I have to buy the smallest one in the world. So I'm going to just do the enclosure that's going to help to fit that perfectly And then everything is fine. And like I said, I plug this entire house into one plug in anybody's house. It's energy efficient enough for anybody. It doesn't need more insulation. So that's kind of what we wanted to have that conversation with people about is don't add more insulation just because somebody told you on television that more insulation is better. That's not true. What's true is that everything is a system and it's a beautiful, you know, elegant thing that we need to tune all of the parts to kind of interact with each other in a positive way and a harmonious way rather than in a, you know, cacophonous way, which is what most houses have.
2: So you've got, how thick are your walls all together? They're two by four, two by four
3: walls, 24 inches on center.
2: Okay. And so, uh, with the one piece of plywood on each side, uh, as another inch or so.
3: And, uh, hurricane strapping on every single piece of wood. So every piece of wood in this house is tied down to the trailer. That is the base of everything. And that trailer was custom made for this house.
2: And how did you insulate the floor?
3: Aha. So we, because to maximize ceiling height, we, um, the floor that I'm sitting on is cork. Right underneath this is the subfloor with no mylar insulation radiant barrier in between, because number one, for a bunch of different reasons, I won't get into it. A lot of them have to do with air quality stuff, but I'm not, uh, putting anything between this and the subfloor, the three quarter inch plywood subfloor. That subfloor is sitting directly on the metal frame of the trailer. So I insulated it with R24 uh, EPS, expanded polystyrene insulation, but I don't get R24 because clearly I've got, you know, any of the nerdy building scientists on your channel would say, ooh, thermal bridging. Yes, that's exactly what's happening. But it's worth it to us because again, smallest HPC system in the world and I want the headroom. So it's not worth it for me to build this floor up because then I, I lose my Right up there, I can stand on that and just bump my head on the ceiling. And I, don't, I wouldn't want to lose any inches on the bottom of the house. That's, so that's essentially why we did what we did.
2: What do you have up there, a table and a place to eat? or What's, what's up on the steps? Yep, that's our
3: little we, – we wanted a dining loft, like a restaurant booth kind of thing. Uh, when we, we, we did a little bit of research by going to an RV show and uh, thinking that we would get some good ideas. And what we ended up being was – horrified by, number one, I thought I was getting cancer all day long. They smell terrible. You can smell the chemicals that are just coming out of every surface around you. And number two, they're not built well. They're built like fast. They build those things in about six hours, I think, on one assembly line. And um, they're not, if you actually poke around and you pull things out, there's no wood anywhere it's just fiberglass glued to fiberglass and, you know, particle board and stuff like that. It's just, um, anyway, it was kind of our research. So we saw that in a, uh, what are those things called? The little metal, you know, air streams. We saw okay. that in an air stream with a little window and we said, you know what, we want one of those. So that's what we decided to do. Uh, and then our bed is down below. Yes. Right there.
2: Bedrooms right below that. Okay. And you're kind of yep. in the living room area now. Our kitchen. And then
3: I'm in the living room. I call this the den. Where the kitchen is right here. The living room is right here. Uh, no, we I'm right now where I'm where I'm sitting is where our, my daughter's pack and play gets set up every night, and right there is where the other pack and play gets set up every night. So, we, wow. you know, people uh, we we got contacted once by a TV show who was like, "Hey, would you want to do wife swap?" I don't know if you know what that is, but like you you swap moms, you know, and then there's like hilarity ensues, and and I said, first of all do not ever call me again. Cause no, I don't want to be on your TV show and no one is allowed to come in my tiny house ever again. We gave 7,000 people a tour and now I'm done. Um, wow. but there's, and they, and they said, Oh, okay, well that's too bad. Do you know any other families living in tiny houses? And I said, do you, do you understand what you just said? Like, this is a total, it's a fad, which is why we did it too. It's just not a real thing. You, the amount of families of four that you'll find living in a tiny house. I, I think that there might be, maybe five in the entire country, and we probably know several of them. Um, So it's just not a real thing. They like to say that it's real on TV, but uh, most people are really fascinated by it because it's a weird idea.
2: Interesting, interesting. All right, now, so you you mentioned the the building enclosure. um, You you didn't get as – insulation uh, crazy as you can. Uh, You matched it to your mechanical system. However, that type of mechanical system, as I understand it, doesn't do a very good job of removing moisture. And you're in a very tight house with four people. You've got a lot of moisture. How are you handling that?
3: Right. Uh, We have normally uh, right there, there sits a desiccant dehumidifier the little unit that's only about this big and it just sits there and quietly hisses away. It doesn't, what's cool about a desiccant demon is it, it doesn't have a compressor in it. So it's not loud in this space. Anything that's loud, including this refrigerator that's right next to me, this is from a sailboat. It's really, really quiet. And that they made it to be quiet. That dehumidifier is right now sitting inside my crawl space, which I can see out there because uh-huh. I'm about to um, go to the builder show and not work on it for a couple of days and it's going to rain quite a bit while I'm gone. So I just want that to be dry. So I've got it installed in there instead. So yeah, that's set all the time to a certain relative humidity that I want dialed in, which is about 40 to 50% in the summertime 50% roughly. And then we also have a 24 hour uh, ventilation system that is essentially replacing all the air inside the house once an hour.
2: now. Okay. And who, who's dust uh, desk and dehumidifier are you using? Uh, it's
3: an EcoSeb.
2: That's a British company. What ballpark, I, how much would one of those go for? 200 bucks 200. on Amazon. It's not bad yeah. for 200 square foot, we'll, we'll do a bigger area? Yeah, it takes 15
3: pints a day, I think, is how much it will take out. In okay. my big house, I'm going to have ultra air bigger systems because it's a much bigger space, and I don't need the compressorless system. The compressor makes it a lot more efficient. So we'll have two uh, ultra air systems over there that are, you know, capable of handling a lot more like a hundred pints a day.
2: I want to go to your new home for just a moment and then we'll come back to the tiny sure. house. You chose a crawl space. Um, I'm curious why you chose a crawl space versus a slab or some other type of construction.
3: Sure. We considered a whole bunch of different kinds. Like essentially what we did was decide what we want out of our home performance wise. And and what I mean by that is not how many BPUs per square foot, blah, blah, blah. I mean, like how comfortable we want it to be, um, what we want it to feel like, how many kids we're going to have, stuff like that. And then um, decide on some, we, we just kind of experimented, experimented, brainstormed for a while. The crawl space is my way of keeping the services for the entire house, the HVAC, the electrical system, the water heating system, ventilation, dehumidification, blah, blah, blah all within my reach to change it later this house i don't know if you can see but there are um what look like rivets everywhere those are screws that are holding the sheathing to the the studs on the inside of the house and i did that because i'm not a good builder and i know for a fact that i'm going to miss something and i want to be able to get back in there later and i have it back had to disassemble walls in here to change something behind it So so the crawl space is my way of not burying stuff in concrete because that frankly scares the pants off me. I know I'm going to miss something and then I'm going to be feeling bad about it for the rest of my life and then, you know, die regretting that thing. So, yeah, that's just my way of keeping everything where I can get it, add more services if I need it, have easy maintenance, not have to, you know, like a common problem. Since we're showing this house, this is the foil for season two this crawl space solves a problem for a lot of HVAC companies because HVAC guys generally on new construction are told, um, you're going to get a nice big closet right in the middle of the house. And then they show up on the day they're supposed to install. And the builder says, Oh yeah, no, the the, the uh, client wanted that as their kitchen. So you have to find a new place for your furnace. Yeah. Well, okay. Where am I supposed to put that? And then like, Oh, my ducts are supposed to run through this thing, but now there's no room because you've had the plumbing guy come in and he made a big mess up there. So, that's, you know, another way for us to just say, look, if you just give enough room to be able to do whatever you want, then you don't have to worry. And that's what attic addict, vented attics, which I don't have one of on this house, and crawl spaces are really good for. So it's a conditioned crawl space. It's going to be uh, – it's insulated under the slab and outside the foundation walls. It'll be the same temperature and relative humidity as the rest of the house.
2: Okay. Now let's – we only have 15 minutes left, so I want to focus on the indoor air quality part of your tiny home at least here we we'll talk maybe tie it into your new home as well one of the sure. things i noticed i watched one of the videos when you came back and um, talked about some of the things you learned on the trip and you know had a little bump here and a bag there you know and, and so forth but one of the things i noticed was that uh you you mentioned having one air change per hour ventilation constantly but you mentioned somewhere in there maybe i misunderstood that you turn that off at night um and i'm wondering what happened to your co2 levels
3: we did not turn it off at night Um, i'm trying to think of what you know it's possible um what i meant was if the power goes out at night which happened when we were on tour um you'll smell it because the composting toilet no longer exhausts constantly so you'll smell that the toilet composts uh, and that that's what wakes you up. Is like, oh, something's wrong. The ventilation's off. So yeah, the ventilation system is one small exhaust fan for the toilet and then the equalizing ventilator, the ERV that's pushing and pulling all the time on the house in equal measure, but that never got turned off. What we did was change it from an HRV, which we were advised would be the better choice because people thought we would be generating a lot more moisture inside than there would be outside, to an ERV. And the ERV worked better in every single climate that we went to, including Death Valley. Hmm. So that was you know, really important for us to, to learn that like an HRV, just that plastic core, that's not for us. The ERV works better. It's just a better buffer with, with all kinds of humidity levels.
2: Are you also monitoring um, CO2, CO and uh, VOCs?
3: Yes. So right. So this is monitoring. I I have something to say about VOCs. that's interesting. This thing does monitor VOCs. It's monitoring CO2, uh, particulate at 10 microns and 2.5 microns as well. And then right behind the Berkey water filter is a low level carbon monoxide monitor. I also have had a radon monitor in here, but there's no, that was just for demonstration purposes. There's no possible way to get radon in a tiny house on wheels. Um, but I'd say that uh, VOCs is interesting. That was something that we learned at HomeCam. It's not a very good metric for toxic, like for pollution, basically because there's stuff in there all the time. And, you know, if we're going to measure something toxic, like measure like gas phase radicals or, you know, gas phase toxic compounds, um, which is impossible to do with a consumer piece of equipment right now. But VOCs is like a a way to just say, well, here's a number we can give you. That's like interesting. Um, And I think that, uh, that's very confusing. I think that the, the way that we're measuring stuff and the tools that we're using to measure stuff is very, is like, it's really taking leaps and bounds ahead. And I'm very excited to see where it goes in the next, look, I just got good air quality uh, <laughs> in the next couple of years, but uh, Oh no, it's bad again. Sorry. Um, so this is a, a good lab for testing these tools. I've had a bunch of different air quality monitors in this place. And since I know for a fact that the ventilation system works, I know how clean it is. I know what it smells like. I know, you know, how everything works. Um, I'm pretty sure of the numbers that I'm getting. And so it's like good to be able to bump these things and say, what do you think this house is like? (laughs) Because often they'll say, Ooh, it's a little bit weird in here, but I, I'm pretty sure that, uh, that it's not, but you know, I'm trying to use as many different kinds of of equipment as possible.
2: What are your CO2 levels running in there?
3: Right now I'm at, and this is why it's kind of funny because the ventilation like I said, is on, let me check. I'm at 1066 right now. Okay. Which is not bad, but for one person downstream of that thing, the fresh air is actually coming this way. So that thing should be breathing fresher air than I am. Um, yeah. So a little over a thousand,
2: but there's it's only got one. a little
3: readout like this.
2: Yeah. But you're the only one in there right now. So I would think when there's four of you breathing, it probably kicks up a good bit.
3: Uh, yeah, potentially. And, you know, it depends if we're sleeping, then we're not moving around as much. One of the things we learned at home is that we each lose about a pound of skin a year, just flying off of us. And yeah. then other people breathe it in. And so now we're, you know, but uh, yeah, I think that there's definitely a bunch of ups and downs. And that's why it's very important for everyone to have a ventilation system in their house. If it's a new house, if it's an older house and it's really leaky, then obviously it's not important. But I think that controlling that kind of stuff and being able to turn it up and turn it down as needed is, is critical.
2: And have you done any um, – it looks like you're using all low-cost sensors, you know, the, the one you have behind mm-hmm. you. Have you done anything with more high-end sensors or, or done any, you know, sampling where you've looked at the indoor air in that way?
3: Yeah. No, I have uh, – no, I don't have any high – really high-end sensors, uh, of my own. I've had other people, uh, asked to bring things in and take readings and stuff like that. I don't remember what any of those are, but we, um, we're interested in building in sensors. So I have a number of like, uh, the easiest thing to do is just embed thermometers in walls and in areas like cavities around so that you can know what the temperature and humidity is in a certain mystery cavity inside your house so that you know if there's gonna be a dew point issue and a condensation issue in there. But I'd say that in general, I'm a lot more interested in causation than in specific, like, because we built this house, I know that there's no formaldehyde in the wood. I know that we've got a one air change per hour rate because I've measured it. I know how airtight it is. I know where the air is coming from, blah, 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 blah. I feel like in it, what, what has happened is that some one of these instruments will screen on me and say, oh my gosh, this is a big problem. And I'm like, okay, wait, you know, an hour and it'll be fine because we've done this. This, this all leads to why I'm actually not a tiny house advocate at all. Because when you build a house that's this small, and if you accidentally build it anywhere near as airtight as we built this, and this is passive house airtight, then you can poison your family in about one day Hmm. and you would make your kids sick and it would smell like a dirty sock and it would be horrible. And so that's, you know, I'm, I'm just very cautious whenever says, somebody says, oh, I want to build a tiny house or even worse. I have an environmental sensitivity. Maybe I should have a tiny house. Mm. And I think everything that's in a normal house is going to be in this house. And it's going to be closer to your face than in a normal house. Why would you want a tiny house if you have an environmental sensitivity? Um, But I think people think of the idea of a bubble as something that's actually achievable. And it's just, it's not, we live in real life.
2: Let me just make sure, Cliff, did you have anything you wanted to, uh, any questions or comments?
0: No, no, my hat's off to him. I, I think he's very creative, and I, I think that uh, the reason he's been able to do what he did is he came to this industry with a different thought pattern. So he, and, and I think that's why it works.
2: Interesting. Yeah, I know you. Thank you. Cliff likes to. He, he likes people to think outside of the box, and um, sometimes when you've been in an industry for a long time, you you get kind of pigeonholed. You, you you're focused only on. What you learned in within that industry, and and sometimes it needs we need people like yourself to come in and shake things up a little bit. Uh, now you also thank
3: you very much.
2: Uh, you're, you're welcome. It's great to have you, and um, you know it's fascinating to follow what you're doing here, Corbett. We uh, you know we have this little podcast we've been doing for a long time, but um, it's interesting to see how you've taken kind of the same kind of thing we did and, and gone to another level, which is uh, great. We, we really appreciate that. I noticed in the video you had some mold issues. Um, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that one below the bed. Um, there was. Foam. Oh, yes. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Uh, and if you could explain what happened there and, and why.
3: So, sure. So, this is another major issue with tiny houses why it's just not a good idea in general. Um, everything in a tiny house has to be built in because, well, for our kind of house, because this was built to move. Most tiny houses are not actually built for the road. It's kind of a, um, you know, little sticking point, but we have everything built in. So I've got like, if you can see here, my drawers there that are under the stairs. Yes. If each of those is filled with stuff. And let's just say for the sake of this uh, analogy, they're filled with blankets, like little blankets and wash rags. And you shove that to the back. What you have now is an R15 wall, that then has another R15 separating the living space from the surface of that wall. And so now you've got all this extra insulation added without an air barrier, like our clothes, which are all hanging inside of my uh, bedroom down there. I have insulation that's going to cool the surfaces and allow condensation to happen on the backside of those clothes or drawers or whatever it is. And so, if I don't have the right airflow around all those areas, and also if I've got a mattress that is sitting on the subfloor, you know, essentially, with yep. just one layer between it. Sorry, my cat keeps moving the camera. Sit down. <laughs> no problem. Anyway, this this uh, in, this mattress that we had was foam, which basically that's what insulation is. A lot, you know, half the time. And it was insulating the surface of the floor, and it had these holes in it that allowed air to go down and, and uh, come in contact with that floor. And it was, of course, really really cold. So we had all of this uh, mold forming on the bottom of the, the mattress. We have since gone to an air mattress. It's a sleep number, which is a really fancy way to say an air mattress. Air mattress doesn't have any insulation value, basically. It's two pieces of plastic that's filled with air. And, of course, there's some insulation value there, but it's not, nothing like the other so basically when we sleep on it our bodies are warming the surface of the floor and now we don't have as much of an issue with the condensation from the moisture getting down there so anyways it's like all those really weird nerdy uh, things about building science that we all are so interested in and now I mean I'll, I'll say this too I don't believe in setback thermostat anymore because I have an experience with this house I can feel how when I set this thing down a couple degrees all the surfaces, the solid stuff in this house drifts down a couple degrees. And then if I want to warm the house back up, it's not a question of me warming up the air. It's a question of the air being warmer and now having to suck, you know, to warm up all of these surfaces again mm-hmm. um, to to make it all comfortable because the surfaces are much, much bigger in this house than they are in a normal. house. So anyway, that's the kind of thing that you find out when we, we live this way is you, you actually live some building science and air quality adventures.
2: So if, If that was a solid um, R30 wall, you wouldn't have that issue. But because it's not solid, you have blankets and so on and so forth that are acting as insulation. But there's also um, the potential for air from within the home, you're breathing, et cetera, to get behind those blankets. That's why you had that problem. The same thing under the mattress. The mattress, I didn't understand until you explained to me there was actually air going down through. Um, the holes.
3: I didn't know those holes were there until I pulled the cover off that thing. I was very upset.
2: Interesting. Interesting. Very interesting. All right. Well, that's that's good. good. Yes, Uh, Cliff. Did you solve the problem um, with the
0: uh, blankets in the uh, drawers?
3: I mean, it's mostly just checking. That's what I kind of advise my clients. Uh, You know, you can't solve every potential performance problem in a home. And so when you have something where you're like, you know what, we're just going to have to do it this way. Great. That's fine. But that's where you might have an issue. So just leave a little hatchway for yourself every three months, go in there and check. And if you, if there's a problem developing, you will see it. And so that's the thing is that you can pull all these things out and we can look at everything. And I'm constantly kind of fidgeting with everything in this house because it's small. You can do that. Uh, 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 Yeah. You have to really commit.
0: But but the air The the air, essentially, it's it's sealed, correct. So there's no air moving within that
3: environment, correct? Within those. Within these. Yeah, Yeah, the back of the the cavity. That's yeah. These drawers that I'm pointing to right now, the cavity is actually all one big thing back there. And so, because I've got daughters, they're pulling the drawers out all the time. So it's basically the same as if you had a house that was really airtight, but a million people a day are going in and out it's not really airtight. There's a ton of ventilation happening because you've got this opening closing effect all the time. So I'd say that that's part of what saves us.
0: Do we have your address? Joe, do you come to visit? You? No, no, I'm going to send you the solution in the mail. I have a solution for oh, great. your problem. Yeah.
2: I thought just, about that when I I thought, thought you saw. were
3: going to invite the entire world to my to, to no, come no, my house. <laughs> no, 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 no. Unless you're having a barbecue. <laughs> <laughs>
2: uh, the, what what part of Atlanta are you uh, building in?
3: We're actually down by the airport. Here we're in Chicago, where we were from for 15 years, the, the area by the airport is not very cool. This area is my favorite part of Atlanta, frankly. So we're down... <laughs> Um, just five minutes away from the airport, but it's like a hip little, it's called the tri cities area. And it's, it's a nice little small town within the perimeter so that you have access to all the same stuff that Atlanta, um, you know, Why people Atlanta? who live in the city have access to. What, what? Why Atlanta? Biggest city in the South. We used to not own a car. Um, and we'd like to go back to that at some point. We ride our bikes a lot. Um, my wife is a film actress and Georgia has the biggest film industry in almost the entire country at this point. Ah. Uh, okay. um, Close to my family, close to her family. Yeah, it was kind of a. There weren't really two choices. It was Atlanta are, always.
2: Are you both from Georgia originally?
3: No, I'm from. I moved around a lot when I was a kid, but Florida mostly. And she's from
2: Montgomery, Alabama. Oh, okay. Very. Uh, that's nice, and that, that that explains a lot because I'm thinking to myself, you know, Atlanta is just a nightmare if you want to try and get from one place to another. So you, you've explained. Very you know, well.
3: everybody says that. I have to, I, let me clear the record real quick because I've driven around the entire country. We drag this thing 13,000 miles. There is uh, traffic everywhere.
2: Literally.
3: So, I, you know, I really don't notice the difference. It, you have to plan just like when you're living in the north. You guys are up in, you're in Pennsylvania, right?
2: Yeah, but I'm in you Pennsylvania. You got to have the right
3: clothes. <laughs> right, like you got to have the right outfit. People are like, "Oh, it's a nightmare if you live up north." Like, if you have the right jacket and boots and socks, and like, no, it's not. You just dress for the weather. You prepare, so it's the same as what home performance is about, right? Predict and prepare and prevent the issues that you know, know <laughs> are going to come up. So I don't actually have a problem with the traffic here. It's not a, not a
2: big issue. Doesn't bother you a bit, huh? I, let, let's do nope. this. Um, it's one o'clock, and we really appreciate having you join us. I, I, It was kind of a different show. I didn't really have it real structured the way we normally do. And I'm, I'm glad I did because I really enjoyed just chatting with you for an hour here.
3: Shooting the breeze. Yeah, totally. It was great to yeah. talk to you guys.
2: I love being, you know, that's, what's nice about having your own show, huh, Cliff? We can that's right. Whatever we want. Uh, But before we go, is there anything you'd like to add?
3: Uh, yeah. If people want to watch the show, you can see all six episodes online right now at home And then our YouTube channel is called Home Performance. If you just go to YouTube and search Home Performance, ours is the channel that will come up.
2: Oh, it's homediagnosis.tv. Okay, good. uh, I definitely want to check those out. Um, There are six shows, and next year we hope you'll have 13, huh? Yes, that's right. Mm Excellent. Excellent. And then, uh, John just put up the, uh, the home diagnosis website there. And then, uh, how about the other one too, John home performance and and you still are, um, working with people individually, privately, if they want to call you and uh, consult on something, you're still doing that.
3: Yes, I do. And I I have one week coming up where I've got three in a row schedules. Um, but it's, it's harder for me to make myself available now that I'm building a house and doing this second season of the show and all that stuff. Understood. So the Home uh, Performance, if you just click on the Home Performance uh, link down there on the bottom left, that'll take
1: that you to
2: the showing all. Okay, fantastic. Corbett Lunsford, thanks for awesome. joining us on IAQ Radio Plus today. Really Thank enjoy- you so much, Joe and Cliff. Uh, this is Radio Joe Hughes saying thanks to this week's guest, Corbett Lunsford. Cliff, could you tell us listeners real quick about next week's show? This is a guest you picked up. Yeah, actually,
0: we have uh, a guest next week from Australia, uh, and uh, he's one of the largest restoration contractors in Australia. So he's going to be joining us at 3.45 in the morning his time, which will be (laughs) 11.45 uh, our time for our pregame. But Oliver Thrallfall is his name, and uh, his business is thematic of Australia. He's very successful, and uh, I think people are going to like it a lot. Looking forward
2: to that. Have you uh, known Oliver for a while? Or...
0: I've never met him. I've known of the company for a long time, That's actually, true. and uh, have not met him. And there was some big industry news, actually. Belfort was acquired, actually. Oh, really? Yep. Big deal. Who acquired
2: Belfort? company called American Securities. Wow. That's a big acquisition right there. Yeah, it is, yeah big deal interesting well maybe we can uh, follow up on that next week as well since we'll be focusing on restoration issues um so please come back next friday at noon we'll be back with oliver threat fault three fall uh fall throw fall and uh coming over from down under uh this is radio joe saying thanks again to our Loyal listeners, of course, John. You got to have faith at the controls. This week's guest, Corbett Lunsford. My co-host, the Z Man, Cliff Slotnick. Back next Friday at noon with the next episode of I A Q Radio Plus.
1: For I
0: A Q Radio, I'm Spike Reed. Saying thanks for listening.